0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 5 Preview Edition. Round 5, that's about a quarter of the way through the season. Gee, it goes quick once we start. Uh, Big week 2 for women's football, the AFLW Grand Final. On Saturday in Adelaide between the Crows and the Lions. And we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. But uh, must introduce my footyology co host, Mark Fine. How are you doing, Finey? I'm doing well. The season, gee, it's
1: intriguing, isn't it? When you consider that Melbourne and Sydney have really catapulted themselves into the season, bulldogs look imperious. And we now wait to see the likes of Richmond, West Coast, St Kilda, whether they can get onto the coattails of these early tearaway leaders. It's pretty interesting already. Four games in.
0: Imperious. That's that's a great word. That is better than good, isn't it? It means they're looking commanding, authoritative. Uh, Does it mean um, unsurpassable? Not unsurpassable,
1: but certainly at the at at the top of their game and very much very much market leaders.
0: I think well, I know where you're headed. Oh you know exactly where I'm headed because one thing that is unsurpassable and is absolutely a market leader is the best burger in the universe finally tell all listeners again where they can find it. I don't think Andrew's
1: Hamburgers at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, would be embarrassed to be known as imperious within the burger industry. They certainly had the record on the board, the runs, as one would say, 82 years young. That means poor old Prince Philip, the late Prince Phil, he was only a teenager when they opened up. He could have gone down there in his open-top Model T Ford with his mates and picked up an Andrews hamburger as a, a teen, yet to meet the future Queen of England. Of course he would have had to come from Greece because I think he was Greek but the owners actually a Greek, Greg and the boys so they might have reeled Phil in. I tell you what, over 82 years they've had plenty of famous customers enjoy their magnificent hamburgers at 144 Britport Street, Albert Park.
0: Andrew's hamburgers, kings and a, amongst princes. A very big hello to the two Gregs. Actually, you just made me. I wonder, do they have a burger? Do the boys have a burger? They put feta cheese on, fine. Because I think that could uh, that could sort of set off a burger, couldn't it? With a bit of chicken, it'd be nice
1: in a chicken burger. As as we know, they're not they're not too fancy and too many frills, but. Yeah, I think that could work.
0: Certainly they've got the chicken burger for the health conscious. I might leave that in the suggestions box at Andrew's Hamburgers. And uh, after I drop that little uh, suggestion off, I might have a stroll around the local vicinity and take in some of the fine homes in that area. And it'll strike me, I'm sure, as I see these beautifully renovated homes, that that could only be the work of one particular home renovation company. They are prolific around the area,
1: West Point Properties, Nick Spartels and co. And you'd be delighted with the sort of housing that they can produce. And they're very big in the football community, as we hope we are. The likes of Dyson Heppel, Scott Pendlebury, Mike Sheehan, all live in West Point Property Homes created by Nick Spartels. That's a pretty impressive resume. And they've got plenty of footballers on the books as well. Goose Maguire learning his
0: building trade through West Point Properties, the old Matthew Maguire from St Kilda and Brisbane. Market leaders. I'll tell you what else is a market leader, Finally, That's our other official partner here at the Footyology Podcast, Stats Insider. Now, Stats Insider is a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. They simulate an event 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result. Along with their famed pre-game live and season projections, which currently see the Western Bulldogs as 17.2% premiership favourites, Stats Insider is also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. And in fact, you can find a piece of mine which went up there on Monday in fine display, and that's about uh, the thankful absence this year of people going the early crow. Everything is free to use on site, so check them out at statsinsider.com.au and we'll have some stats from the guys to accompany every one of our nine match previews. Speaking of which, we're going to get into them shortly, but firstly, let's discuss the news of the past few days. On Footyology News Feed. Well, plenty of news around four games into the new season. Uh, it's funny, funny, I wrote a piece the other day about uh, the whack this year of clubs in crisis or coaches under pressure. And lo and behold, um, as soon as I wrote that, up Bob's. Uh, I guess almost the first coach under pressure piece and it was concerning Nathan Buckley uh, and his tenure at Collingwood. Uh, Mark Robinson has written a piece in the Herald Sun about where Bucks is at. Um, And fairness to Robbo, I mean, it's quite even-handed. He's not saying, you know, Buckley should go. He's saying that there's no doubt pressure is building. Um, It's an interesting situation because... I don't think this is solely about how Nathan Buckley is coaching the side. I think there's definitely a convergence of events, isn't there, that have made his job, not for the first time, even harder, Collingwood being Collingwood. And those events are, the, uh, I guess, the uh, resignation of former President Eddie Maguire, the racism report, which precipitated Eddie's departure as president, Um, the fact that you've now got sort of two fill-in presidents who apparently are sort of eyeing each other off and battling over which one will be the successor Uh, you've got the salary cap fallout and the loss of Adam Trelaw and uh, Tom Phillips etc and a pretty uninspired start to the season in which the Pies have beaten Carlton but Pretty flat in the loss to the Western Bulldogs. Um, And, of course, that loss uh, last Saturday night to GWS, none too inspiring either. Uh, I guess, you know, most of those things come back to the coach. Bucks is in the final year of his current contract, uh, which has made it a pretty long stink, don't forget. He started in 2012, so this is season 10. Um, That's pretty decent innings for a coach. So, you know, even without those sort of uh, added um, factors, you know, you'd think any coach in his, uh, what is 11th season, uh, sorry, 10th season as coach, if his side wasn't performing, people would start asking the question, where do you see Nathan Buckley uh, and how secure or insecure is he in that role, do you think? Really, all those factors do add up to potential
1: reasons why this might be a difficult contract. For Buckley, it might be difficult for him to get a new contract. But I reckon the last fact is the most salient. Tenth year, no flags. Got very close, of course, making the grand final, losing in that final kick to the West Coast Eagles. But now, seemingly coming back down the other side of the mountain at the end of his contract at the end of the year, that does really, to me, add up to time to move on. I just wonder whether Robbo would have thought this to himself leading into the game on Saturday night at the MCG, GWS versus Collingwood. Whoever loses, I'm going to write a coach pressure piece because Leon Cameron would have had a 0-4 start with a team that has also made a grand final recently. So he's coming down that same mountain. And I'm not saying that Robbo would have thought that. I'm just saying that, in fact, that game probably was a bit of a coach killer for whoever lost it. And given the Collingwood were hotly favoured to win that team, the article resonates pretty strongly during the week after
0: that loss. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, actually. And uh, you're right. It's sort of like the Giants win and, uh, you know, win minus some key players. And all of a sudden, no one's talking about Leon Cameron. I mean, I guess that's just the way the football media has always worked. I've got to say, in, in all, you know, in any sort of discussion about Collingwood's situation, the one bit of uh, information or reportage, if you like, which has been talked about, which made my ears prick up, was uh, Tom Morris from Fox Footy. And he said this on, um, on the couch on Monday night and then I think wrote something on their website to back it up. But Tom uh, claims that uh, some of the leaders um, at Collingwood, and he actually named names, he talked about Brodie Grundy and Jordan Roughhead have been, according to Tom, very vocal in their frustrations internally about how the side's playing and, and the sort of leadership they're getting. Now, um, Robbo in his piece says, <laughs> it's a strange line, so he says about Tom, he might be wrong, he might be right. Well, I guess that covers both bases pretty much. But um, and what that made me think was someone has told Tom Morris that, obviously, and um, the, fact, the mere fact that someone has said that and been that specific indicates that, they're, you know, that, that is one of those situations where if there is smoke, there is a bit of fire. So something, you know, senior players are pissed off about something. Um, yeah, so that, uh, look, I, I look at there. I wasn't expecting big things from the pies this year. I didn't put them in my top eight. Uh, did you put them in your top eight for No, just out. Yeah. And I th- I've, that for me is sort of the big danger with them, that are they now going to sort of fall into this costly sort of few years of being middle of the road, you know, perhaps being a chance to make finals with a few tweaks, but perhaps, you know, being a finalist that's never good enough to win a flag, it's a really awkward place to be in that. I mean, ask Essendon of, you know, the last few years because you can get sort of sucked into thinking, you know, if we get a couple of big names, you know, we're still a shot. Um, Do we, you know, or do we go back to square one? If you go back to square one, you can risk sort of giving away too much too quickly and then the job is an enormous one. I mean, if you look at Collingwood, were at the end of 2017, um, they were probably in an even less favourable position than they are now. You know, they hadn't played finals for a number of years and that 2018 performance sort of came from nowhere really and a lot of that had to do with the way they played their football. That's what's disappointed me about Collingwood since that near premiership. And when you say, even then, when you say near premiership, I mean, they lost the preliminary final by a kick the following year. So they were almost at the same level again. But I don't think they've ever played with the same sort of uh, verve, if you like, or zing or attacking mindset over the last two seasons as they did in 2018. And I can't help but think with Nathan Buckley, whether that comes back to his mindset and his and a battle which he's freely conceded. His battle about being able to let go, if you like, and to delegate and to trust other people in that sort of leadership space, because he has been a a bit of a notorious micromanager. And whether once you get so close to tasting that success, whether that makes you sort of instinctively take back some of that power you've relinquished. Um, So I just wonder if Bucks is sort of, continue to fight that battle himself since then? What what do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I actually think Collingwood are now entangled in another problem that is rarely spoken about at AFL level. But I think it's going to cause them, or is currently causing them, some issues. And everybody looks at the father-son scenario as a great opportunity for clubs to pick up star players without having to position themselves in the draft or trade for them. Of course, they might have to uh, wear an opposition bid, but basically if there's a seemingly very promising player in the draft, you can take that player as a father-son. But I feel that you somehow can become committed to those players. It becomes difficult at certain clubs, especially when they're, Sons of champions, and those players have those past players have such a huge hold on the club. And basically, at the moment, Collingwood are heavily invested in a couple of Browns, Josh Dacos, and now position themselves and part of their machinations over the just recently held. Very unsuccessful trade period. Were to position themselves to get enough points to pick up uh, the very good Nick Dakos in the next draft, but I don't know whether that positions themselves particularly strongly moving into the future. You know, I've got my own opinion on Josh Dakos. I know he's dangerous around goals. I've watched him very carefully this year. I don't think his attack on the football is of AFL standard at certain times. And the Browns are decent players, not great players, but this heavy commitment to the father and son element in their club because they're going to have four of these kids going around and it's sometimes very hard to move them on. I'm sort of a lot more bullish about how Essendon went about their business and picked up three very exciting youngsters, as did the Sydney Swans, unencumbered by father-son. And I just wonder whether or not that sort of what seems to be a great boom for the club, a father-son pick, can sometimes be a bit of a curse. And I know the Bulldogs had to work their way through some father-son selections with Cordy's. Wallace not in the team at the moment is not an easy thing for the club to negotiate. We know that Libratore, who's currently playing good football, has had his father sort of looking over his situation at the club at times, and it can be problematic. I think Collingwood are in a bit of a,
0: a, a tangled process there as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, the obvious counter-argument to all that is Geelong, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, no, look, there's, cert- there's certainly issues here. You know, it, it takes a lot more courage on the part of a club to overlook a potential father-son choice, doesn't it? Which uh, the Bulldogs benefited from because um, Sydney, of course, overlooked uh, Josh Dunkley and he's been a wonderful player for them. But, you know, like I I think nine times out of ten, the club's always going to sort of lean in favour of that, aren't they? I mean, Essendon, obviously, with uh, Tom Hurd now, you know, um, we haven't really seen much of him yet, didn't necessarily play much junior football. So that's a fairly speculative sort of selection. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I hadn't hadn't considered that dimension to it. Anyway, it's uh, all set up for the Pies to do what they've done so often in the past. They've got uh, the most difficult road trip in football to Perth to play West Coast, and that is an opponent against whom and uh, a venue at which they have regularly pulled out um, a meritorious backs-to-the-wall win. So let's see if they can do that. Don't forget, though... Um, Well, actually, they had contrasting results there last year, didn't they? They went over there the first time, got absolutely spanked, and then they went over and won an elimination final. So, uh, great test for them. Let's see if it galvanises the pies or they uh, start sort of falling apart at the seams, in which case that pressure on the coach will be ramped up considerably. All right, let's move on. Um, Another item getting a workout in the papers today. In fact, a story in the age... And it's that hoary old chestnut free agency. Yep, four rounds into a new season. And we've already started wheeling out the free agent talk. This concerning Essendon's Zach Merritt, who becomes a free agent at the end of this season. Uh, Carlton apparently have been interested in Merritt for quite some time. And uh, there's a report that Port Adelaide has now joined the queue of potential suitors for Zach Merritt along with Melbourne. Um, So look, we note that as news. I'm not saying it's not valid news. It's just, I get a bit frustrated with the free agent talk because after you've registered as fact that club A is, you know, interested in free agent B uh, what else is there to say until they make the decision? It's just all speculation. It's, rarely if ever do you get a hint of what's going to happen and then we start sort of second guessing everything about you know if the guy's not talking about it that means he's definitely going or if he is talking about it then it's a distraction blah 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 so uh, you know look it's a he's a obviously a valuable player and would be a massive loss to Essendon So I'm not saying it is not valid news, but I just don't know where you go with that sort of free agent speculation once someone said, okay, well, they're interested in him. Well, fine. Okay. Well, we're not going to know for another six months, are we? Just on him, Rowan, Zach Merritt specifically. Look,
1: he's a high possession winner and you'll be able to answer this question for me. He's a small bodied player. Is he the sort of footballer that, has driven Essendon, driven their success in recent years? Or is he more an accumulator? I'm not sure whether Zach Merritt is the sort of player that would vastly change a midfield. I'm thinking of Carlton specifically. You know, they've had Murphy in that midfield for a long time. And I think just his size, not his gameness, not his ability has counted against him. I'm not 100% sure whether, well, I'll tell you this, Zach Merritt wouldn't be on the top of my shopping list if I was looking to bolster my midfield.
0: Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with you, and that's uh, no disrespect to him because he has been a terrific player for the Bombers, but he is not he is not really a match winner in my view, and I agree with you. He's a—he's an accumulator rather than a presence You know, and um, I mean Dusty Martin's a ridiculous comparison, I suppose, but you know, a Fife or a Dangerfield or these sorts of guys, you know, if they get the amount of possession Zach does, I reckon you notice them a lot more. Um Correct. That being said, that being said, of those three teams, the obvious best fit for me is
1: Melbourne, who does have a strong inside midfield and could probably do, and I think Zach Merritt would be best served to be at a club where his skills of accumulating the ball outside of the contest would be most, most valuable. So those three Melbourne make the most
0: sense by a long way. Yep. Yep. Well, like I said, speculation now, and uh, if anything uh, concrete sort of happens on that front, we'll talk about it, but uh, we're not just going to indulge in weeks and weeks of endless speculation about reading body language and stuff. Um, Speaking about bodies, uh, one to talk about here, and that is the overturned suspension of Ben Cunnington. Hang on, what did I say speaking about bodies? Well, body contact. Uh, Ben Cunnington, of course, initially handled a one-game suspension for a bump on Adelaide's Rory-Laird. It was a bump that was graded as careless, high and medium, which adds up to a one-game penalty. And the Kangaroos successfully challenged that at the tribunal and the medium impact was downgraded to low, which meant that a one-game suspension became a $2,000 fine. Um, Look, we won't talk at length about this, but I think a few people were mildly surprised that uh, the tribunal agreed with North and downgraded that I've got a bit of an issue with it. Look, I've got no issue with Cunnington's intent or, um, you know, the way it was delivered. It was a pretty sort of textbook bump. But the issue is, and I wrote this a few weeks ago, the bump itself now. It's almost impossible these days in football, I think, given the velocity and, uh, at which those guys travel and, and the, their strength. It's almost impossible with a bump even if it's delivered legitimately for the head not to take some sort of impact. Now that's what happened to Lead and he wasn't seriously injured and he played on. And obviously that is a big factor. I'm just wondering, finding can the AFL really afford to say the head is sacrosanct and concussion is this big a concern. And anytime, you know, if you bump, there's a duty of care for the head, you know, if, if, you make contact with, I guess what I'm saying is, are we at a stage now where if you make contact with an opponent's head, you're going to get suspended because you just can't do that, whether it was intentional or not. And I think to sort of make a suspension dependent upon how he came up immediately, whatever is perhaps dangerous ground because we don't know enough about concussion. We don't know how uh, delayed it can be, for example, and, Uh, You know, I just think perhaps with this concussion thing, we've got to be more black and white about it, i.e. if you do make any sort of contact to an opponent's head, that's uh, at least medium impact and deserving of a suspension. I agree with
1: you. I don't know if the listeners to this podcast recall our discussion around the Paddy Dangerfield bump that started the season off. But at that point, the question was, a lot of people are bringing in and raising the question, do we ban the bump? And and I think it's agreed you can't ban the bump because the bump is used to position players. There's so many parts of football that could be called a bump. But if we identify as a separate action, this sort of more high speed, this, this more velocity bump of taking somebody out, who has either got the ball or just disposed of the ball or chasing somebody with the ball, then we can certainly say this, that any bump that contacts the head of an opponent should be worthy of a suspension. And I think that's what the match review officer was trying to convey here. Most concerning to me and most interesting, well, let's just say worth discussing here is that the person who delivered the bump, Ben Cunnington, has got a a serious issue himself with concussion. I mean, his start to the season was delayed because of concussion. We didn't know when he was going to start. He is a vital player in the weakest team in the competition. And he himself is not taking seriously enough the risks involved in bumping because so often, once the bump is committed to, at that velocity, heads clash, and there's no guarantee that the person delivering the bump will be any better off than the person receiving the bump. So I wish Ben Cunnington got the
0: message of how serious the bump is, Rowan. Yeah, no, all, all good points. Um, I just, in fact, early this morning, I just had a cope kind of stumbled on something um, on Twitter, which made me think about it a bit more. And it's a really powerful little video message um, made by Adelaide Women's Captain Chelsea Randall. Now, uh, the AFLW Grand Final is on at Adelaide Oval Saturday afternoon, 2pm Eastern Standard Time, 1.30pm in Adelaide. Uh, standalone game, no AFL men's game will be conflicting with it, which is great uh, scheduling and kudos to the teams who allowed that to happen. By shifting their game. But, uh, you know, it's really unfortunate Chelsea won't be playing after being concussed in Adelaide's preliminary final win. But this is a really powerful message which she has sent out about the impact of concussion and why she decided not to pursue the possibility. And it was a real possibility that she might be given clearance to play And I just thought it was worth us having a listen to it. So, do you think of this.
2: I decided not to take any further action um, because what kind of message, I guess, would that be sending to our grassroots football? Because concussion is serious. Um, It is scary. You know, when I was 20, I was watching an E-Division Grand Final and um, a young man, like, died in front of my eyes. The week prior, he'd... um, he'd been concussed. He went to seven different doctors. He got an approval to play. He was the captain of his team and he received a normal bump at a centre bounce and he never got back up.
1: Wow. I mean, that is jaw-dropping. that jaw-dropping. Doesn't that say it all, Rowan? And it's very hard to argue for a bump that makes contact to the head, not getting
0: the suspension after you hear that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and also read the recovery too. You know, this is why, um, you know, I think we've just got to be so careful with concussion. And uh, clearly, you know, anyone who witnesses something like that, you would never, ever, ever forget it. So, um, yeah, a really powerful video message and uh, incredible from Chelsea Randall. Gee, she's an impressive human being, and uh, all the best to her side, all the best to Brisbane's side too. Uh, I know we've said it a lot, but this has been a fantastic AFLW season and really looking forward to this game. They met, of course, in the very first women's grand final in 2017. Brisbane's been in two and lost them both. Adelaide's uh, been in two previous and won them both. So Will the tables be turned? Absolutely make sure you watch this game because it will be a ripper. I'm really looking forward to that as much as any of the men's games over the weekend, that's for sure. All right, that is enough news for this week. We have nine games to preview. Let's do them now. On Footyology previews with Punch. Round five kicks off Thursday evening at Marvel Stadium, 7.20 p.m., with not only a great football match, but a great cause. It is Maddie's match, uh, annually played between St Kilda and Richmond, and it supports research and funding for research into bone marrow failure. Uh, That is as a result, of course, of the tragic very, very early passing of Nick Rewalt's sister, Maddie. And Nick and his cousin, Jack, have been uh, Trojan-like in their pushing of this cause over the last few years. And it's become a really integral part of the AFL program. So congrats again for that. It's a cause well worth getting behind. It's also, on Thursday evening, a really interesting game in its own right. Richmond now 2-2, of course, after that nail-biting loss to Port Adelaide last week and St Kilda after a very dodgy start to the season. Turned things around last week with a spectacular comeback against West Coast after being 33 points down about halfway through the third quarter. Stats Insider tell us in the lead-up to this game that the Tigers are now a 57.4 chance of not making the top four this season. However, they do remain second favourites behind the Western Bulldogs where flag favouritism is concerned. And the Saints, well, it's a small sample size, but the Saints are 7-2 in games when Max King has kicked at least two goals so far in his career. They're 4-8, however, when he hasn't. So that's an interesting little lead-in, which may give you some uh, guidance on the tipping front. Uh, Yeah, really intriguing game, this one, finally. We got much in the way of potential changes or alterations to the lineup. Yeah, there certainly will be a couple of changes at Richmond, I suggest.
1: Camden McIntosh has seen off 12 days of concussion protocol and the word is that he is right to return. Very important player for the Tigers, Camden McIntosh, and, and, and underrated at that. He'll come into the side, and I've got a feeling both of their first gamers in that loss to Port Adelaide might make way this weekend, or I should say Thursday night, because of the importance of the game. They certainly don't want to go two and three. So Will Martin and Ryan Mansell, I think, both miss out. For Camden McIntosh, then they've got some choices. Josh Caddy was the unused sub. He's probably got pole position. But they could go for Daniel Rioli or a Patrick Nash. I'm tipping that they're going to probably lob for Josh Caddy. But it could be any of those three. Even Mubbjord-Scholes might be in the mix. As for St Kilda, they'd love to go into this game unchanged with the same 22 that beat the West Coast Eagles. The question will be over Rowan Marsh. who did go off during the game against the West Coast Eagles. It's another foot problem. This This time, plantar fasciitis, something that I've had. Famously, Robert Harvey had it in his time at St Kilda and cured himself by jumping off the kitchen table an incredible personal pain until it's snapped. Because when it snaps, basically, it stops hurting and you can go on and play football. I think they'll find a way for Marshall to play, but if he doesn't, then Sean McKernan would be expected to come back in the side, even though Paddy Ryder's back at the club, not yet matched fit, I believe, and ready to play AFL football. As far as the game's concerned, well, they're both 2-2. Two and two. It's a huge game of football. The Saints will be in purple, white and black for Maddie's match. And it's a game that really St Kilda need to continue that same feverish forward press and forward pressure that they were able to find partway through the game, as you mentioned. They kicked eight goals six to no goals one after the, I think, ten and a half minute period of play gone in the third quarter. Amazing stuff, really. I think they can do it. I've just got a feeling with the Tigers that their best football that they're seeking to play doesn't come as easily at Marvel Stadium as it does at the MCG. I would have had no problems picking the reigning premiers, the the powerhouse in the competition at the MCG. But just going back to this same game last year that St Kilda won against the Tigers, Richmond were also off a loss or two. I think St Kilda can do it again. So I'm going for the upset. Saints by nine.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm torn on this one and and conflicting evidence too about that venue. I've got a sort of feeling the Tigers aren't as good at Marvel. And in fact, recent history backs that up. They've lost three of their last four games there, including that one to the Saints last year. However, their record overall against the Saints is pretty good. They've won five of the last six, including, of course, that semi-final win last season. And that's the one that sticks in my head. And what I sort of remember most is the commanding performance of uh, Tom Lynch as a key forward and Jack Rewalt too. I just, I still fear St Kilda not having sufficient quality or strength to be able to cope with those two key forwards if they get any sort of a decent supply. So absolutely understand people tipping the Saints, but uh, two and two for the Tigers. They wouldn't want to let things slip too much further, I think, and it might be time for a statement to be made. I've got a lot of faith in the Tigers, as you know, Finey. I think they can pull out of a temporary downturn and uh, get back on the positive side of the winning ledger at 3-2. I'm going for the Tigers by... 10 points. All right. That is the first game of round five. We've got another big one coming up on Friday evening. Well, this is a hearty annual big clash on the AFL schedule in Perth, Optus Stadium, 8.10pm Eastern Standard Time. That's uh, 20 minutes later than the usual Friday night time slot. And it is between West Coast and Collingwood, of course. Collingwood, we spoke about before, 1-3, not travelling that well. And the Eagles, well, they'll be stung by that reversal against St Kilda, a game uh, in which they were in pretty total control before basically sinking without trace. Uh, Collingwood's had some famous victories on the road, particularly in Perth, uh, none the least their last trip over there when they snatched a massive upset elimination final win over the Eagles. Can they repeat it? Well, they certainly need a performance like that now more than ever. Uh, Stats Insider tell us not only do Collingwood really have the footy at the moment, but when they do, they tend to butcher it. They're ranked 17th for mark differential, 16th for disposal differential, while they are 17th where actual disposal efficiency is concerned and are committing 66.8 clangers per match which is a number only St Kilda are faring worse in. Sidebottom, Crisp, Grundy are all ranked within the league's top 10 for, or bottom 10 for clangers per game. Now that's some interesting stats here. Yeah, the Pies tend to get a lot of the footy, not getting nearly as much of it this season. Uh, certainly a huge game for them. Pretty important, though, for the Eagles too, Finey. What do you see happening in either camp there, reselection?
1: Well, Shannon Hearn is out for the West Coast Eagles. He was a big injury loss during the game against St Kilda. That opens the door for former Lion Alex Witherton to make his debut for the West Coast Eagles. Expect that to happen. They may also make uh, some changes with Jermaine Jones having a pretty quiet game. He might go by the wayside. Xavier O'Neill, who made way for Luke Shuey when he returned to the team, a couple of weeks ago, could be recalled to the side. Zach Langdon is a possibility as well, as is Brayden Ainsworth, who picked up a lot of possessions in the waffle. As for Collingwood, well, they have to replace Taylor Adams. That is a big loss. Levi Greenwood, who came into the side last week, uh, may may well start off. Brayden Sear, who was removed from the team because of Gastro. I I don't know whether he's available, so he's a chance to come into the side. They may look to make some changes around the edges. Finn McRae, Jack McRae's brother, is close to making his AFL debut, and there's a possibility that Trey Rusco, who seems to come in and out of the team, could also play. So the play is in danger. Young McCreary kicked a goal last week. He was pretty vigorous. I don't know whether he holds his spot. That will be up for debate. Will Hoskin-Elliot never seems to get a lot of the ball. He may also be under pressure. And Callum Brown also could be under a little bit of pressure to hold his spot, especially if Braden Sea is available. Look, this is going to be a tough game for Collingwood. We know they performed so admirably in the finals last year when nobody gave them a chance. But that midfield, which has been down on personnel as a result of the loss of Treloar, the loss of Phillips for depth, is further impacted upon, knowing that Taylor Adams is now going to miss the bulk of the season. They head over to the West Coast Eagles, and I guess that's where the West Coast Eagles themselves are a little bit thin, is in the midfield. So it's really whether or not Collingwood's back line can hold out that power-packed West Coast forward line And then whether Collingwood's forward line themselves is capable of kicking a winning score. And I think that's where they fall flat again, Rowan. I'm pretty comfortable with West Coast's defensive setup. So when you look at those sort of three groups separately, I think West Coast do come
0: out on top. And I give West Coast the nod by 21 points. All right. Uh, I concur. I mean, Shannon Hearn is uh, an important loss for West Coast, but he's not as important a loss as Taylor Adams is to the Pies. Like he is the, now the heart and soul of that midfield. And that is just a massive loss Where when they can least afford it. Just quickly on the venue and the opponent. Um, Collingwood has got as good a record at Optus Stadium as any interstate side I would venture they've won four of their seven appearances there against both the Eagles and Dockers Uh, they have for all what we're talking about uh, having some great jass with West Coast they don't necessarily win many of them they've only won two of the last seven and both those wins including that final last year have been by a solitary point so it's been pretty narrow margin both times I just don't think they've got the personnel this time. I can't overstate how big a loss Adams is for them. I think the Eagles will be keen to make a point, particularly in midfield, even without Luke Shuey. Uh, they, they want to prove that they can get the job done without him. Uh, and I think they will. Uh, I think they'll be pretty stunned by what happened against the Saints last week. I'm going for West Coast by 26 points. Let's talk about Saturday. Saturday. Four games on Saturday and they're all happening pretty late. Uh, that is because, of course, the AFLW Grand Final is the first football AFL, uh, AFL football game played on the day. Two games starting at 4.35 Eastern time on the Sunday. The first of them at Marvel Stadium between the Western Bulldogs and the Suns finey. And uh, the Suns, well, starting to really struggle with all those injuries and Western Bulldogs just looking, as you say, imperious uh, and official flag favourite as we speak. What does Stats Insider say about this game? Well, the premiership favourites, according to Stats Insider, will have their best start to a season since 1946 if they win this game. A quick note on Tom Liberatore too, not only is he leading the league with 34 total clearances and ranked third for total school launches at the moment, but he's doing all of this with just a 77% time on ground number, which is relatively minuscule for someone of his position, and that ranks him only 18th at the Bulldogs. So getting a lot done without necessarily having the game time. Going to be super tough for the Suns here, Finney. What can they do about it in terms of personnel? Well, there's going to be one force change at the Western Bulldogs. Caleb Daniel has accepted his one-match ban
1: for a dangerous tackle last week, so he's got to call his jets. Who comes in? You know, Hayden Crozier has made a quicker-than-expected recovery from injury. They might give him one more week. His AC joint got injured. Uh, just at the start of, I think, the end of pre-season. So he's missed the start of the season. I reckon they'll just err on the side of conservatism there. And your, one of your favourite named players, he's been subbed the last two weeks, Lipinski. Oh, like, private Lipinski. Yeah, I think he will come into the starting 22. As for the Gold Coast, they've got a forced change as well. Plenty of injuries for the Gold Coast to uh, overcome, unfortunately, not only is form eluding them, but they're also finding it very hard to get their best team on board. Lemons is now joined that, Sean Lemons has joined that list of injured players and maybe Sam Flanders, who came on the field for Lemons last week, holds his spot in the team, or Jack Homsch, Jeremy Sharp, another player that could be considered. But these are only... Cosmetic touches around the edges. I don't think I need to spend too long on my predictions for this game. You've got a powerhouse team with a midfield that runs deeper than the Marianas Trench, that is the Western Bulldogs, playing, unfortunately, a team whose midfield is particularly thin with the loss of Matt Rowell and big Jared Wits. So you count the Ruckman as part of the midfield, and that's working beautifully. For the Bulldogs, having added Stephen Martin in, they just they win from where the game starts. That's the middle, and they'll take advantage of that under the roof at Marvel to win by sixty nine points.
0: Yeah, I'm i think I'm a pretty conservative tipster with my margins, but I'm uh, I'm thinking higher than lower as well. Uh, Gold Coast can't afford any more injuries, and they keep getting them. Um, and Sean Lemons is a considerable loss for them, um, he could really aid their efforts. And in fact, uh, some lemons aid would be just the thirst quencher the Suns need, but unfortunately aren't going to have. That's a really terrible pun. I don't know why i laboured so long over it, really. Uh, I don't give him a prayer, to be perfectly honest. Bulldogs are in supreme nick at the moment, have options all over the park, a midfield way too deep for the Suns. And uh, I'm not going for your sort of margin, but I am going for something in the 40s. Uh, Let's say 48 points for me for the Western Bulldogs. All right. At the same time as that game, there's another game going on in the Harbour City. 4.35 Saturday afternoon, the Battle of the Bridge at the SCG between the Sydney Swans and Greater Western Sydney Giants and uh, this game's taken on a totally different look in light of the Giants terrific win over Collingwood last week while Sydney at the same time remain undefeated but uh, just scraped over the line against those bombers finey. Stats Insider tells about this game that while the Swans are fifth favourite for the flag. They're behind only the Bulldogs, where top eight and top four probability is concerned. A quick note on GWS's Sam Taylor, meanwhile. While he doesn't get a huge amount of plaudits, he's ranked fourth in the AFL for total spoils, while he's winning or breaking even in 87.5 of his contested defensive situations. Easily the league's best number among defenders. Gee, that's an interesting stat. He is very underrated, isn't he? Gee, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got uh, mixed feelings about this one. Uh, selection, we got anything to consider there? Yeah, well, this might
1: sway you if you are split on allegiances because Sydney Swans' great start to the season hit a bit of a bump in the road in the win against and losing a key player up either end of the ground. Dane Rampey has had to have surgery on a broken finger And that was something he suffered actually before round three, but he carried it for a couple of rounds. This is um, not going to be an ongoing situation. He's now going to miss for about a month. And we saw Isaac Heaney. Was it a punch? Was it a forceful push behind play against the Bombers? Um, He said he was embarrassed by it. But he broke his hand, a bone in his hand, and he's going to miss for about three weeks as well. So they're out. There's no way that either of those key players are playing. And they're both important men up either end of the ground. No question that Rampy and Heaney's absence will have an effect. As the GWS Giants, they're happy to have not only got onto the board against Collingwood with their first win of the season, but come through unscathed. And I'm thinking that that's good enough to go into the game with no changes against the Sydney Swans. Wow. You're right, Rowan. It does now read so differently after that very good win by the GWS Giants. It wasn't just the fact that they got over the top of Collingwood, but the way they did it. They led from go to woe. They looked like the impressive Giants of previous seasons in that the midfield had a bit of a say and, of course, Toby Green's been irresistible this season. I, I, I'm going to say he has risen to the ascension to captaincy with the injury to Canilio. It really is, I think, cometh the hour, cometh the man for Toby Green. A great appointment. And Finn was brilliant, not only up forward but in the ruck. So nine goals between those two men. My worry for the Giants is if you can curtail those two blokes... Where do the goals come from? And we do know that the SCG is a harder place to be creative. So for Toby Green, he's going to have to work within the old post office or within the old telephone box, and that becomes a harder proposition. Even though Ramsey was one of his possible opponents, I do think that they have options there. And I just think that the Sydney Swans, especially with now Buddy as an option up forward, do have the firepower to counter and improve GWS Giants. To me, the Swans by 15.
0: I'm i uh, I'm going out in a bit of a limb here, and I'm sort of going counter to the barrel I've pushed all season. As you know, I put Sydney in my final eight, and I'm quite proud of that, and they've been outstanding. But I just thought I saw last week the start of uh, a little... Uh, plateauing, if you like, of their form. And I think that Rampy and Heaney are massive losses. I mean, look, we've talked a lot about their kids and they've been fantastic, but the performances of that senior core have been no less important. Heaney is a a huge factor for them in that sort of forward venturing into midfield role. And Rampy is the general of that back line. And... Rowan, could could I jump in very quickly because I didn't
1: mention likely replacements. Lewis, Mel- Lewis Millican was best for Sydney in a VFL practice match against the Giants. He seems an obvious replacement for Rampy. And Will Haywood, who's really struggled to make the team, seems a likely replacement for Heaney, though James Robottom, a favourite of yours, also
0: presses for selection. Yeah, well, they're handy in, certainly. I, I just There's something very compelling about that performance by the Giants last week. And I reckon they're a side that doesn't necessarily go up and down that dramatically or that suddenly. Um, I, I think they might've played themselves back into some real form. Toby Green is just outstanding. And that was a fantastic game from Finlayson. You're right. Look, if they're quelled, I don't know where the goals come from, but they're in such good form. I just wonder if the Swans have the armory, to quell them on this occasion. The other thing that sways me here is the Giants' record on the SCG is actually pretty good. They have beaten the Swans three of the last four times they've played them at the SCG, and all those victories have been by 40-plus points. So they've done it on the bit, basically. They've been a pretty good side, mind you. Um, I'm going for... I don't know. Yeah, I guess it is an upset. I haven't looked at the odds. But I'm going for GWS to win this one. It doesn't mean I think the Swans are done. I think they will finish higher on the ladder, but I just think they might have their first reversal of a season here, and I think GWS might be starting to bounce back a little bit, and I expect that run to continue. I'm going to go for GWS by two points, Viney, in a very, very tight contest. All right, that is Saturday Twilight. Let's talk about Saturday evening. <laughs> Saturday night at the MCG, 7:25 PM sees Carlton taking on Port Adelaide. The Blues having uh, well got on track. They are now two and two after wins over Fremantle and then Gold Coast last week. Port Adelaide, of course, coming off that well uh, oh, that rousing narrow win over Richmond at home last week, uh, getting a tiny bit of. Vengeance, I guess, of the preliminary final loss to the same opponent. So, an intriguing game. What does Stats Insider tell us about this one? Well, two wins in a row for the Blues make them a 51.2% chance of playing finals, which is actually a stronger number than Brisbane's, believe it or not. Harry Mackay looks in serious contention where an All-Australian spot, or perhaps even a Coleman medal is concerned, According to Stats Insider's shot charting, he's amassed a league-high 20 set shots for goal so far this season, and he's converting those chances at a brilliant 65% efficiency. He was hitting at a highly concerning 39% last year in contrast. So he's fixed up his kicking, he's a key part of Carlton's plans in this game, would still be a a pretty sizable upset, Finey. Uh, what are both sides looking at here in terms of personnel? Well, some forced changes,
1: particularly at Port Adelaide, make for interesting discussions at the selection table. Jack Silvani is out again with that shoulder injury, and this time he might be out for quite a while. Zach Williams is expected to return to the side, having been left out of the team against the Suns due to calf tightness. I think he's right to go. And Matthew Kennedy made his first appearance on the field as a substitute. And he may well hold his place in the team. Just keep an eye on Lockie Plowman, who came uh, was, was impacted towards the end of the game with a knock to the knee. And even Adam Sard, who was definitely hampered by some restrictions around his knee as well. And we didn't see his run of dash against Gold Coast. So keep an eye on both of those players. I wonder whether Carlton attempted to play Mitch McGovern, but they, they're sort of the players in the mix. I expect Williams to come in for Silvani and possibly Paddy Dow to miss out for Matthew Kennedy. Dow to be going into the subs role. Dreadful luck for Port Adelaide with two of their real young guns expected to miss most of the season, certainly the bulk of the home and away season. Xavier Dersmer, who was great in the win against Richmond, he's got lateral ligament problems in the knee out for 10 to 12 weeks. He's had to go under the knife. And then the terrible syndesmosis, which is the curse of the modern footballer, has struck Zach Butters, and he could be out for a similarly long period, certainly not playing over the next few weeks. Into the side, I expect, well, Sam Mays came on as sub. I don't think he did a great deal, the former Brisbane player. How about a forgotten player for Port Adelaide, Boyd Woodcock? He hasn't been seen for a while, but he played pretty well in the Sandfall on the weekend. And Tom Rockliffe, who's been out for a couple of weeks with a suspension in the sandful is also a chance to return. And last week, I suggested that Sam Hayes might be a chance to make his debut. He continues to... He's a young ruckman. He continues to impress in the sandful, And he comes into the side for Laddams, unless Todd Marshall, who was a late withdrawal last week, can prove his fitness. So expect a few changes for both teams. As far as the game, well, Port Adelaide's a better team than Carlton. They're a better team than Carlton in Adelaide. They're a better team than Carlton in Melbourne. They're a better team than Carlton on Mars if they ever want to play the game in Ballarat. They do have some injury concerns, but their win against Richmond was pretty impressive. They did it without much help from Dixon. I think they've got too much to play for and too much strength around the ground. Port Adelaide, not by a lot, Port Adelaide by seven points for me.
0: I'm going for the power here as well. Uh, yeah, they are massive losses, Butters and Dersmer, aren't they? A real shame too, because they're two of my favourite players to watch in the competition, I think. Uh, Butters, everyone knows him now. Um, I haven't done that gag for a while. But Dersmer is a guy who I think was starting to get his just desserts in terms of kudos. He's a really courageous player, and there's a real bit of silk about him as well. I still think Port's got the depth to um, get away with the points here. Their record at the MCG, it's better than I thought. That's not saying much. They've still lost three of their last five there. Uh, they've won a few more than that going back a little bit, back to about 2017. They don't necessarily play their best footy on the MCG. I think they're more of a Docklands uh, side when it comes to Melbourne. But uh, they are, as you say, simply a better side than the Blues. I reckon they've still got the personnel to get the job done. I'm going for Port Adelaide by 16 points. At the Gabba, up in Brisbane, 7.25pm Saturday evening. Brisbane taking on Essendon. Uh, The Lions finally getting back home, finally, after a long and uh, pretty eventful stay away from home. Not necessarily that fruitful. They were stiff to lose to Geelong down at the Cattery. They beat Collingwood after the buzzer. And then uh, pretty tough conditions for them up against the Western Bulldogs in Ballarat last weekend. Uh, They'll certainly appreciate their home turf. I think uh, conditions far more favourable. But they are up against an opponent which over the last couple of weeks has acquitted itself pretty well. Essendon, of course, belting St Kilda a couple of weeks back and then just getting pipped by the Swans at the SCG last week. Stats Insider tell us that the Lions ranked third last season for inside 50 differential, but that, so far this year, has plummeted to 13th, and they've been smashed by 17 in that area against the Doggies last Saturday. That despite actually winning the disposal count by fourteen. They have just the one win so far. And even that was, as I said, after the siren. Uh, must be said, though, Stats Inside a Futures model isn't panicking too much. And they have Brisbane still seventh favourite for the flag and a 45.4% chance of playing finals for a third straight season. Uh, tough ask for and Finey, even with Brisbane not having set the world on fire in 2021. Uh, what are the Bombers looking at in terms of their mix for this game? Yeah, we'll start with the Bombers. And
1: I'm going to put this to you. Andrew Phillips um, showed a bit of form in some VFL practice matches. Do you reckon he could come in for Peter Wright? I'm, I'm not 100% sure whether Peter Wright is fulfilling all of his requirements as the first ruck for us. And we know with Sam Draper still on the sidelines for a couple of months. I'd bring Andrew Phillips in. What would what
0: say you? Uh yeah, look, I don't mind Phillips. I think he there's a chance he'd give a, a stronger bodied contest, but I think there's also a chance that Wright will grow into that sort of greater ruck responsibility as well. He just he runs high on confidence, right? And I think he can still provide uh, a better alternative up forward too. Put it this way, I don't think their forward setup is strong enough that he can't afford to be part of it. And uh, Phillips, should he come in, he doesn't offer anything in terms of goal-kicking value. So I suspect they will stick with him. The, the one pretty reasonable chance to come in for the Bombers is probably David Zaharakis, but uh, we'll wait and see on that one. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. He sort of snuck up on a few people as last week's medical sub, didn't he? So he's
1: right to go. Whether he plays or not... Um... I don't know whether there's really a spot in the midfield for him at the moment. We'll wait and see, as you say. As for Brisbane, well, a very important player for them structurally is available for selection, Daniel McStay. Do they pick him straight off six weeks of injury? I wouldn't be surprised if they do, and the guy to miss out would be Tom Fullerton. So a chance for Dan McStay to come straight into the team. Don't underestimate how keyed up the Essendon players are to succeed in this game, with Joe Danaher being a real factor. Now, people say, well, sort of players nowadays don't have that emotional connection to club and to past players, and they don't feel it like spectators do, like the members do. And whilst Essendon supporters would love to stick it up to Joe Danaher, do the players feel the same? I've got a feeling they do. I think they've got a bit of a point to prove. Can they go up to Brisbane and do it? It's a bloody hard ask. Lockie Neal's been down on form. RS and capable of keeping him quelled, as teams have in recent weeks. I'm not as sure. And certainly the drive that Brisbane get out of the back line with the likes of Harris Andrews leading the charge, and even kicked a goal last week, should be enough to propel them over the line. Look, it's a fascinating game, but I've got to go with the
0: obvious selection. Brisbane by 17. Yeah, mate. Me too. Uh, look, I, I think Essendon will be very competitive. Uh, they, you know, they've been really impressive the last couple of weeks. But, know, yeah, the Gabba, gee, it's tough. They got absolutely belted up there last year against Brisbane by uh, 11 goals. They've lost their last three there. Um, the others by reasonably comfortable margins. Brisbane, yeah, th- look, this is... Brisbane just simply can't afford to drop this one. Essendon have lower... Demands upon themselves, I think it's fair to say. And look, they'd be pretty happy with their at least competitiveness since that aberration in round two against Port Adelaide. It's not delivering the points necessarily. They've now lost two games by less than a kick. But I don't think it's as much about wins and losses to the Bombers this year. It is to Brisbane. And they've got already some ground to make up. Were they to slip to 1-4... Uh, boy, to be almost irretrievable. So these are the, exactly the sort of games they have to put in the bank. And uh, not only put in the bank, I think they have to give a reasonably convincing performance. Danaher, obviously, is the big subplot. It's going to be pretty interesting to see how he goes. But there are a few signs from Joe last week, even in the difficult conditions in Ballarat. I reckon he might uh, sneak a few against his old side, despite their efforts to stop that. Uh, I think the Dons will keep Brisbane honest, but I think Brisbane in the end will probably have a bit too much class. I'm going for them to win that one by 18 points. And thus, we come to Sunday. First game on the Sunday schedule is 1.10pm Eastern Standard Time at Adelaide Oval, and it is between the Crows And the Dockers. And fair to say, Adelaide, one of the surprise packets of this season thus far, three and one. It took them nearly a whole season to win three games last year. They are three and one after four rounds and sitting in fifth spot on the ladder. Pretty handy. Fremantle, well, they are in danger of becoming those uh, proverbial flat track bullies. Another good win last week against Hawthorne, but it was at home and their two road trips against Melbourne in round one and against Carlton in round three, they were appalling. So they've got to come up with something better than that. Stats Insider tell us, uh, so far an excellent cameo season for the Dockers rising star, Caleb Sarong. He leads them for center clearances and total clearances and he's third for total inside 50s. Doing all of that on just 72.2% time on ground, Which puts him 25th out of 26 at Frio. He has enormous potential. Uh, A boy from Warrigal, remember that? That's uh, Craig Hutchison country, Finey Warrigal. Um, And uh, I call it Carriere's country. Carriere's country. I think Bob Murphy country. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure why Hutchie got a plug there, but good day, Hutchie. I know you're a regular listener to this podcast. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of selection possibilities here, Finey? A really good one for Fremantle.
1: We know that Taylor Walker's had a just explosive start to the season. In fact, didn't he have an explosive start to the game last week against North Melbourne? He had two goals on the board after about 90 seconds of play. Didn't parlay it into a big total, but still he leads the goal kicking. Fremantle have the perfect antidote. Griffin Logue is ready to go. Played in the waffle last week, was one of the best of field. And he seems a really good fit in terms of size and mobility for Taylor Walker. So good news there for Fremantle. As for Adelaide, potentially no change, even though remember the player they picked up from GWS in the offseason? Jackson Hatley? Yes. He's showing some good form in the sandfall and he could shoehorn his way into the side or certainly take David McKay's place as the medical sub. So not a lot of changes there. Fremantle head into this game with a win at home. Well, that doesn't mean a lot to me and it doesn't mean a lot to pundits because, of course, we know that there are two very different Fremantles. The good news is that not only was Fife in the team after a concussion delay, a uh, concussion a concussion um, period on the sidelines, delaying his good start to the season. But he played really well. He was most impactful and, as always, key to their victory. Hasn't David Mundy had a good start to the season? The veteran, again, getting 25-plus possessions. Adelaide at home look like the obvious selection. I'm going to go for the upset in this one. I think that Fremantle, surely. And and, and if they catch me out this time, if I'm again caught out by a non-committed Fremantle away from home, I will sack them permanently. But surely Fremantle, who came into the season aspirational and at two and two still can firmly place the finals in their sights, can get over what has been a fast-starting Adelaide Crows, but still a young Adelaide Crows team, as Fremantle start to build up to full strength. I'm going for the Dockers by 15
0: points. Yeah, that, that's a, a bold selection. Uh, yep, I, I have officially lost all faith in Fremantle away from Perth. Uh, they just stunk it up against both Melbourne and Carlton. They were terrible. And their record in Adelaide doesn't inspire any more confidence. In fact, they have played at Adelaide Oval now nine times for one victory. And that was just by 11 points. And we have a listen to some of the losing margins at Adelaide Oval as well. 43 points, 50 points, 100 points, 89 points, 69 points, 33 points. They've barely even been competitive. This this sort of lack of competitiveness away from home, Um, it was something that under Ross Lyon, the Dockers came to pride themselves on, and they've really lost that. Subsequently, I think, in the last couple of years. And um, they absolutely need to get it back. I think Adelaide is playing too good a football to let this slip to the Dockers at home. And uh, I don't think they will. I'm going for Adelaide by 22 points. 3.20pm Sunday at the MCG. It is Hawthorne up against Melbourne. Of course, the Hawks... Well, they've been competitive uh, without threatening to take the match points since round one, and the Demons, well, they are flying. Undefeated, great start to the season for them, and dispensing of a disappointing Geelong last Sunday afternoon in a game in this t- same time slot. Hawthorne's lack of penetration continues to haunt them, says Stats Insider. They're ranked fourth for the disposal differential, dead last though, for total inside 50s, all largely explained by easily the league's lowest kick to handball ratio, while only the Kangaroos are generating less meters gain per game. Quick one on the Ds this is their first four zip start since 1994, while the Stats inside a Futures model is giving them a 49.4% chance of finishing in the top four, a probability bettered only by Sydney. And the Bulldogs. So uh, it's been a terrific start to the season for Melbourne. Uh, What are we looking at in terms of potential changes here, Farnie? Well, Mitch Lewis is out suspended for the Hawks. Obvious replacement there
1: is Jacob Krasitsky, who was, in inverted commas, rested last week for the trip to Fremantle. He'll come back into the side. Sean Burgoyne, was he slipped to the medical sub last week. So with the week off, I expect Sean Burgoyne to come back into the team. Tyler Brockman, the young West Australian, who had a pretty good start to the season, has quietened off in the last couple of weeks. I think his spot's in danger. And Michael Hartley, a player that you'd be familiar with, forced his way into the team last week. And he may well make way for a James Cousins who could add some power, some um, possession-winning power to the midfield as he is a bit of a ball getter. As for Melbourne, Stephen May cop that errant elbow from Tom Hawkins, totally accidental, but that will be uh, no consolation for Stephen May. Unfortunately, he's out for a month. So who replaces him? Tom Petty. Who is it? Tom Petty. No, Tom, <laughs> <laughs> oh well you'd like that one um is it Harrison Petty will he Harry- break will he break their hearts for him? <laughs> well he's been out for a year and a half Harrison Petty so that's why I've forgotten his name <laughs> Tom Petty good one finding oh well that's how it goes if they're looking for like for like they bring in Harrison Petty for his first game in a year and a half but maybe they pull a bit of a a swift, Not a Swifty, but raise a few eyebrows because both Ben Brown and Sam Wiedemann had limited game-time returns to football in a VFL practice match last week. Do they bring in one of those? Given Hawthorne's paucity of tall forwards, I wouldn't be surprised if they roll the dice with Sam Wiedemann. That'll be an interesting Wachshund selection. You know what? Melbourne are four and zip, but Hawthorne have been pretty bloody honest and Melbourne would not want to drop their guard against the Hawks. I think if you ask Melbourne supporters what's been a a real cause of frustration, a, a sort of a thorn in their side in recent years, has been whenever they have got some momentum and look to be a team on the move, they've dropped games to sides that they shouldn't. So the alarm bells should be ringing loud before these teams even take the field on Sunday. Melbourne have been fantastic. It would be disrespectful to tip against them. Their midfield's functioning brilliantly. Young Jackson giving a great chop out for Gorn, who's been able to go forward and back as required. May and Lever have been central to their success. No May puts a lot more pressure on Lever, but I don't think Hawthorne's got the forward line to really put the acid on that combination being broken up. I'm going for Melbourne by 21.
0: Yeah, look, it's it's pretty hard to tip against them, isn't it? I, I really am hoping that Harrison Petty can actually make that lineup. Look, he's a, he's a good prospect. I'll tell you one thing about him, Fine. If he does get a Guernsey, he won't back down. Um, and look, if he keeps his place, uh, I think being part of that Melbourne lineup, he could well be running down a dream, a Premiership dream. And uh, hopefully he doesn't cop a big one, and uh, which would send him into a free-falling sort of uh, status. Did you like you've, really, you've really made me pay for my Tom Petty comment. <laughs> There's three Tom Petty song references right off the top of my head. I can't think of anything else now. No, look, seriously, uh, Melbourne were super impressive against the Cats. I think they've, they're getting that mix back of, you know, they've been too much of an inside team. Um, hasn't Ed Langdon been an outstanding pickup for them? The amount of territory he covers, he's really, really important. But they've got that balance back. You know, of, you know who's playing well, his lookalike. I tell you what, I find it so hard to identify one from the other. Jay Hunt.
1: Yeah. yeah, he's
0: playing well too. Yeah, it's that uh, headbanded, flowing locks sort of thing. But they're both valuable, valuable runners. And their uh, resurgence, if you like, uh, certainly in Hunt's case, has had a big part to do with the sort of form Melbourne's in. Yeah, look, I, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the Hawks. I think they've been, I think they've been pretty reasonable this year. But you just can't tip against the Demons in the form they've shown so far. Um, it'll be a good test for them. Can they keep that winning run going? I think they can. I don't think it'll necessarily be by a lot, but I am going for the Demons by eighteen points. <laughs> Final game of round five is a twilight affair and it's down at the Cattery GMHBA Stadium, Geelong taking on North Melbourne. Of course, North really doing it tough at the moment. The Cats, eh, they're only just going to, of course, uh, they have won a couple by the skin of their cat teeth and pretty disappointing in defeat against Melbourne. Last weekend, the Cats are ranked 14th for contested possessions per game, stats insider tell us. That is their lowest position since 2015, which was a rare instance when the Cats actually missed finals altogether. You know, they've made finals 15 of the last 17 seasons. They ranked third in that stat uh, last season. Only Joel Sirwood and Cam Guthrie are ranked within the league's top 50 contested possession players at the moment. Paddy Dangerfield had been top five in that stat in the previous seven seasons. So, obviously, his return will help them massively in that area, particularly, Finney. That is the biggest selection news for this game, surely. Well, North Melbourne have got some selection
1: woes rather than news. Yeah, good news for them that Cunnington was able to overturn the suspension. But that doesn't mean that they'll be seeing any of Luke McDonald or Cameron Zerhar. 12-day concussion protocol means that Zerhar is definitely not playing and Luke McDonald is going to miss an extended period with a pectoral injury. And we know when you tear your pec, that could almost be the season. So really bad news for last year's best and fairest winner. Josh Walker was a late withdrawal last week with a minor hamstring awareness problem. We know hamstrings. I wouldn't hold your breath on him returning, which means the long-forgotten but now-used Tom Campbell, ex-Bulldogs, might retain his place in the team. Atten Bosan-Valagi could make his debut for North Melbourne. I think it's about time they gave him a go, and Dom Tyson could return to the team as well. Whichever way you look at it, it's starting to be not only difficult for North on field, but particularly difficult at the selection table. Well, Paddy Dangerfield, he's back. And as you said, no more important returnee could there be for the Cats, given that their midfield has been a little bit disappointing. Uh, There is some suggestion that Jeremy Cameron could be ready. I think they hold on for one more week especially given their opponents and the likelihood of them winning. Gary Rowan returns from suspension. He'll certainly be back in the team. Who goes out? Uh, Well, unfortunately, Zach Guthrie, who's a little bit of a revolving door player at Geelong, probably misses out. And Quinton Narkle, but uh, given that somebody in the midfield misses out for Dangerfield, could be the unlucky player to miss out there, or maybe he deserves to. Your mate? You're certainly the boy that you're keeping an eye on, Max Holmes. He was the unused medical sub last week, Rowan. I don't think he forces his way back into the team this week, especially given the return of Dangerfield. I'm not going to spend long on this game. Geelong, back at GMHBA, desperately need to get their season, not only clicking in terms of winning the game, but playing more positive football. Let's see them score more. Let's see them play with a little bit of the old gay abandonment. They can do that against North Melbourne. 39
0: points should see them home. Yeah, I'm worried about this one. It's got spanking written all over it, uh, unfortunately, because North were, North were more than handy for three quarters last week against the Crows, but uh, they undid a lot of that good work with a, a really poor last quarter in which they allowed the Crows to kick eight goals. We know how hard it is to win at Geelong. I was just looking up their record there. We remember that famous win over Geelong in uh, round five of 2007, which kick-started an era of Geelong greatness. Um, That was sort of a line in the sand game for the Cats. But since North won that afternoon, they have won just one game since then in 14 years. So seven of the last eight uh, visits to Geelong, they have won. And in fact, haven't beaten Geelong anywhere since 2015, losing their last six times to them. Um, The Cats are an interesting one for me. I've written a a piece about them this week for Australian Community Media because uh, we tend to take them for granted a bit. They're just sort of a fixture there and they've got so much talent. Uh, Even when they sort of struggle a bit, we think, oh, you know, they'll, they'll fix themselves up. They'll be thereabouts. Despite a still okay win-loss record of uh, 2-2. Uh, I'm, I'm just seeing a few issues there. They're looking really slow. They got really exploited in defence last week by Melbourne, and that's an issue for them. And uh, their contestable clearance numbers have been terrible. Uh, Paddy Dangerfield obviously makes a huge difference to that. But they're a lot less potent in attack at the moment too. So there's some flow-on effects from missing midfielders. Of course, remember Duncan and Menegola have missed a couple of games as well. So finally, sort of getting some midfield strength back. They're at home. They've got a point to prove after a disappointing loss. Unfortunately, I think the Roos are going to be, uh, well, the sacrificial roo, uh, sacrificial meat in this case, because I can see Geelong having a bit of a day out here. I think they'll win very comfortably. I'm going for the Cats by 42 points and that is round five, previewed fulsomely, which leaves just one segment left in this particular podcast, and that's our favourite segment, finally. <laughs> Take 40 flashbacks. Ah, never get tired of that theme music. Never get tired of this segment. And uh, I've gone outside the auspices of the AFL once again, finally back to a favourite old competition of ours, the Sweet VFA. And this is an absolute classic. It is the 1990 grand final between Williamstown and Springvale. Williamstown, of course, runners up the previous two seasons and looking for all the world for 90% of this game like it was going to be three grand final losses in a row. Springvale uh, commanding leaders for most of this match and uh, got th- a five goals plus up early in the last quarter. Uh, I was fortunate to be there and uh, I've got a bit of a confession to make about the events of that afternoon when we returned. But this is one of the great grand finals of any competition Famous and famously won by a Brownlow medalist, Dad, who was a very good player in his own right. Let's have a listen to the highlights of last quarter of the 1990 VFA Grand Final.
3: Rickman out in front could just have the edge on his Bennett Smith. They both are lumbering after it.
4: Well, if any man was going to win a game, this is the fellow to do it. The man on the mark is 63 53 meters out. Rickman will have to kick it over 60 metres.
2: Oh, I think he'll get the distance. He'll just pull something big out. Seen him do it before. Oh, I don't think he's 26 gone minutes,
4: minutes
3: gone. He's oh. done it! Rickman gets it. Oh. Fourth it is. That's four points the
4: margin. Well, I'm speechless, Russ. This has been a sensational game. And I think they'll win it too now. They're uh, really alive. Brown, the war horse. only as far as Atkins. Oh, good bump coming in there from Dudley. Mayland looking to waste time, holding the horse, a good decision. The tackle was initiated before it was out of bounds. Gould's kick, Minot. Has he got some support? Michelle, running straight at it, taking over now. It's Billy Swan, Rickman's clear. 75 metres from Garley he must get around Smith. He's done that. McTaggart's the player he's looking for. Oh, and he can kick a ball too, Peter. He's got the breeze directly at his back here. Brett McTaggart, a Liston medalist, passes it off to Bill Swan, who's not it's such it's a long gone. kick. But In we'll... his seventh grand final, he can win the game for his adopted club, Williamstown. This is unbelievable. I can't believe ball-
3: Really hard to imagine that it's all happened. Springvale seemed to have the game one. What a kick. What a kick for Bill Swan. What a hit! Oh, yes! yeah.
1: Well, who could have predicted this? Have a look at the scenes. And Rickman did very well. He
4: had to get around Smith and a little chip pass. And McTaggart, aware of the situation, 10 metres closer was Swan, and the best kick of his life is right through the middle. And they're two points in front. We've played 29 minutes. We're going to probably have a, another 30 seconds, I think. A double-team round. Anderson knocks on. The experienced players coming in. what scenes has Williamstown in one of the greatest grand finals played in the oldest football competition in Australia
1: well I mean that was a famous grand final Rowan and as you alluded to son of Dane of father of Dane Swan the great Billy Swan talk about a grandstand finish and He's pretty quietly spoken, Billy Swan. He's not the sort of boastful father that would be carrying on about that finish in a grand final. But I reckon when they're sitting around the old family table, he can match Dane for football memories and grand final memories with that one.
0: Oh, I love that Williamstown side. Yeah, Billy Swan had transferred from, from Port Melbourne. Of course, he had a 40-year-old Barry round as captain coach, who actually won the Norm Goss medal for best on ground that day. Ian Chops-Rickman, a VFA legend, whose two massive goals gave them a chance to win it. And Jack Aziz, big key forward, who would go on and play successfully for Werribee. Uh, he was a favourite too. They just had characters all over the place. I loved watching him play. Now, my confession... I was in the crowd that day with my then wife and the ages VFA rider, none other than Nick Johnston. Uh, Now, these days, the media manager for the NBL, former media manager of GWS, big shout out to young Johnston. But he was a young, impressionable age cadet who decided to sit in the stands with us and watch the game. And I embarrassed him. I embarrassed myself finally. I behaved like an absolute pork chop getting into a running battle all day with a Springvale supporter. Uh, I couldn't watch the last couple of minutes in my seat. I was pacing up and down the terraces. And when the siren went, rather than just enjoy the wind, I ran back up the steps of the grandstand (laughs) to this bloke who had a few mates with him, and I leaned over to give him a sarcastic kiss on the cheek. Unfortunately, his mates didn't think I was leaning over to kiss him They thought I was about to belt him. So they piled on top of me and thus ensued a stacks on the mill from which I extracted myself and walked off thinking, well, I was lucky to get away with that, until a hand descended on my shoulder. It was the hand of an off-duty policeman who had decided to arrest me for, I don't know, charges still to be determined. But he basically started marching me off and said, you're coming with me. I then did some serious sweet talking and finally he let me go. Whereupon whereupon I turned around to see a vaguely startled Phil Cleary sort of giving me one of those, what the hell are you doing looks? Nick Johnson went back to the age office to write his match report, was asked what he made of it all. And he said, fantastic game. Some absolute imbeciles in the crowd, however, and uh, I've never really lived it down. I didn't have to go public with it, of course, but call this and atone it for my sins. My only excuse was I was 25 and even stupider than I am today. That is unbelievable. You've never told me that. That's great. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Of course, I did the double because that was the week before the AFL Grand Final, uh, which, of course, was Collingwood's drought-breaking premiership against Essendon which upset me so much that when I was walking up the Essendon race with Simon Madden and a couple of Collingwood supporters had a go at him, I crawled my way up the inside of the cyclone wire fence and started trying to belt them through the fence. Oh, angry. Yeah. I I was even angrier than I am these days. All right. Enough self-indulgence. Please share with us your fantastic footy flashback.
1: Oh, look, I mean, just on the back of that, You see, to come no surprise to listeners that I have had some involvement with the law at football games. My most famous one was against Sydney many, many, many moons ago when I was um, removed from the ground for throwing an apple at a Sydney supporter that struck her on the back of the head. And as I was being escorted from the ground, just out of nowhere, there was a cameraman and and a reporter with a... With a um, microphone. What happened there, mate? And the police are holding me. And I said, I said something like really bogan, really pathetic like, ah, oh, they know nothing about footy up here. They only know capper and, you know, just it was a terrible response. And it was beatbox. Remember that old ABC? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Anyhow, I thought I'd got away with it. So next Saturday, you know, I come back to Melbourne. Next Saturday, I was downstairs watching TV at home and I was watching Beatbox to see if it was on it and I came on and my sister was upstairs watching on her TV and she yelled, Mum, Mum, Mark's on TV. (laughs) So my mother joined me in the TV room for the most embarrassing 30 seconds of my life. (laughs) How
0: old were you then? Nineteen or eighteen? Oh Jesus! Well, there's a mission for someone. If you've got any old footage from Beatbox, uh, let's see if we can dig that up on YouTube. Of course, we've also we're, we've a- already experienced your uh, performance with the final uh, St Kilda at run through. Yeah, similarly bogan like. But
1: <laughs> one of the things i said on Beatbox was ridiculous. It was like. What, what's happened here, mate? <laughs> the first thing I said was, I'm getting chucked out of the SCG because I'm a good throw. <laughs> All right, give us Alrighty. your back. Well, I'm going back to not quite that far, but to 1992, round seven, a very famous game of football. Hawthorne taking on Richmond at Waverley Park and the great Jason Dunstall almost unthinkable in the modern game, he went within a whisker of equaling and probably even breaking the all-time record for most goals in a game. I'm sure you remember it, Rowan, 17 goals against the Tigers. And what I've got here is the Channel 7 news report from that night. So we get highlights of that game, but there's also highlights of another game being played at exactly the same time where another goal-kicking great also hits double figures. So sit back and have a listen to the Channel 7 News report from Round 7, 1992.
2: Dunstall was only one goal short of equaling Fred Fanning's all-time goal-kicking record when he booted 17 goals against Richmond at Waverley Park. Dunstall, ironically recruited to Glenferry Oval by Tigers coach Alan Jeans, became only the third player in league history to kick more than 16 goals as he spearheaded the Hawks' 79-point win. The match began with the Hawks first into stride through Hall, but from that point onwards, it turned into the Jason Dunstall show. The brilliant spearhead was running rings around the Tiger defence, marking with ease and in most cases kicking truly. In fact, he kicked six of Hawthorne's seven for the term and only three late goals by the Tigers kept them within 24 points at the first break. In the second quarter, the pattern continued, Dunstall goaling in the opening minutes, but he was lucky to escape serious injury after marking soon afterwards. Although stunned for a minute, Dunstall recovered quickly to post his eighth a minute later, And he was to kick three more for the term to finish with a half-time tally of 11. Highlights for the Tigers were few and far between. Maxfield's goal the best of them as they trailed by 47 points at half-time. The only interest in the second half was to whether Dunstall could break Fred Fanning's 45-year-old record of 18 goals. That looked very unlikely when he managed just two in the third quarter to take his tally to 13. But his hopes remained alive in the final term. By the 25-minute mark, Dunstall had 17, but the record equaler eluded him. Nonetheless, it was still one of the great performances of modern-day football, helping Hawthorne to a crushing 79-point win. And while Dunstall had a birthday, his St Kilda counterpart Tony Lockett continued his one-man demolition job of the Adelaide Crows at Moorabbin. Plugger, who had kicked a total of 22 goals in the past two meetings against the Crows, added another 10 today as the Saints hammered the visitors by 74 points. Peter Landy reports.
3: Despite last year's 131-point thrashing, the Crows started confidently today. Sanderson brought up full points after a good mark. And then Tony McGuinness drilled home two more in quick succession. Dale Kickett, though, brought the fans to their feet with this magnificent grab, and that fired at the Saints. Low marked in front, duly converted, while Lockett twice pulled in big grabs, each bringing up two flags. The second term, however, was Olsen-Kilder. Fletcher cut loose at half-forward for a fine running goal, while Winmar, quiet in the first quarter, booted three for the term as the Crows were stagnating. Lockett made it 10 goals straight to the Saints before Jamison finally stopped the rot with Adelaide's fifth to leave them 27 points down at half-time. Things livened up momentarily in the third before Sanderson set the example to his teammates with an inspirational goal. Again, however, Lockett was the difference. He steered through four more with the crows outgunned. The only interest in the last was whether he'd kick his 10th. This snap made it nine, and then right on the siren, he did it, making it 32 goals and three outings against Adelaide. The Saints today by 74 points. Peter Landy, 7, Nightly News.
0: Ah, uh, great stuff. We just took bags of goals for granted then, didn't we? Of course, it was Tony Lockett who kicked uh, the not. Unsizable tally of 10 against Adelaide at Morabin. No doubt you were there that afternoon finding. I presume you were at that game, were you? 100%, yep. All right. Well, uh, I was 100% at the Collingwood v North Melbourne game at Victoria Park, covering that for the Sunday Age. And what I remember most about the Jason Dunstall thing is the ABC were covering the Hawthorne-Richmond game. And as Dunstall got closer and closer to the record, you know, you could feel the excitement building and the sense of an impending record. Uh, And they managed, to their credit, to get Fred Fanning, the holder of that record for 18 goals in a single game, on the phone. And uh, I will never forget it. They got him on the phone uh, after the game, after Dunstall had finished with 17 goals, and said, well, Fred, uh, Jason Dunstall nearly did it. He, uh, he nearly got past your record, to which Fred Fanning's response was, oh, thank Christ. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, you're supposed to be very gracious when a record of yours goes like that. But Fred was very protective of that 18 goals in uh, game hall. In fact, Fred Fanning kicked 18-1, I think, didn't he, in that game for Melbourne against uh, St Kilda at yep. Junction Oval. yep. yep. Uh, Anyway, great memories and uh, that was a younger Michael Roberts, of course, of uh, Triple M fame and, of course, former Distinguished St Kilda, Richmond and Fitzroy player, Michael Roberts doing the news reading there on Channel 7. Uh, Great memories, great way. Very quickly, on that afternoon, I'm going to test your memory because you are a football savant. Um, Big
1: gold-picking efforts at both Moorabbin and at Waverley. Not so in Collingwood's
0: big fifty-point win over North Melbourne. Do you remember who kicked four goals to be Collingwood's leading goal kicker that day? Uh, I do, as a matter of fact, because I tend to remember the details of uh, most games I've covered. It was uh, none other than Scott Russell. You, you are on the <laughs> spectrum. You say <laughs> I am. And
1: finally, if you get this correct, I'm I'm walking. It's my old favourite. I I'll walk on my hands to to. Ballarat. There was a fourth game played simultaneously that afternoon, so four games starting at the old 2.10pm, was between Melbourne and Sydney at the MCG. What was notable about that game? It was a draw.
0: How do I walk on my hands to Ballarat? I don't know, but I'm going to make sure we get a video there to capture the occasion, and uh, this time you can bob up on TV for not being a dickhead. No, actually, that would be pretty dickheaded. So uh, we'll, we'll make it a, a pair of appearances on that front. Um, all right. Sorry, I've got a good memory for stuff like that. All right. That is the end of the show. Good. Thanks, for your company, everyone. Quick shout out to our sponsors, please. Farnie. as good as Rowan's memory is for
1: football stats, equal to that is the quality of burger you get at 144 Bridport Street. Albert Park, Andrew's Hamburgers and a new house build or renovation by West Point Properties and the great Nick Spartel. So put those three in a bracket, in a group amongst which there are no peers.
0: Andrew's Hamburgers, West Point Properties and Rowan's Footy Recall. And statsinsider.com au they are a sports and data driven industry leader they cover more than 15 sports across the world check out their stats they're all free to use it is a really really good website that one plenty of good writing on it as well Um, thanks for listening hope you enjoyed it Uh, good luck to your team for this week hope we get a great weekend of footy we'll be back to talk about that on Sunday night and, of course, wrap up that AFLW Grand Final between Adelaide and Brisbane. Good luck to both those teams. And I'll leave you with this in the words of a famous Melbourne newsreader. May your football be good football. Good night.